Before we uh, look into God's Word together, we have um, just a, a really great opportunity, as, we, um, as you're well aware of, um, to hear from people who've gone out to different places and experienced God in different ways. Um, today we have uh, a, a sister named Kaylee Huang, Huang who graduated from the University of Central Florida and is uh, waiting on the Lord for her next steps. And she um, took Harvest 201 and, and went to a conference called JAMA this past week with about 13 others from Harvest. And she's going to come and she's going to share a little bit of what God's doing in her life. Uh, so as she comes, let's give her a round of applause as we just welcome her to share. mentioned I just recently graduated from UCF and um, I had signed up for JAMA before I graduated so it was kind of like I came back and I was like okay um, I'm gonna go to this church conference um, but I'll go ahead and start my testimony. God truly revealed himself to me at JAMA just before we headed to Philly. I remember thinking oh my what did I get myself into? This trip is going to be for the youth and Monica and I are the only college-age people going but that's okay I'll just go as a leader and invest my time in the youth who are coming with us. When we arrived at the Pennsylvania Convention Center, I was surprised to see that JAMA was in fact composed of all different age groups, starting with babies to grandmas and grandpas. I thought to myself, well, this shouldn't be so bad after all. While at JAMA, God taught me how, how much he really loves me and how desperately he wants to use each and every one of us. Oftentimes, I as well as others think, God can't use a sinner like me, but in fact, he really can. One speaker shared the story where Jesus fed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. I began thinking, okay, how many times have I heard this story before? Jesus performed a miracle. Now what more is there to say about this? But the illustration that the speaker gave really hit hard. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he asked the boy simply, give me what you have. Jesus didn't say, how much do you have? Do you think it'll be enough? He simply said, give me what you have. And with that, Jesus was able to feed the 5,000. In the same way, God is telling us to give him everything we have. Some of us have more than others, but that's okay. If we surrender all we have to God, he is going to use, a, use it to further his kingdom, just like Jesus used a little bit of food to feed the large crowd. God taught me mainly through seminars and speakers. However, there was one instance where the Holy Spirit was speaking through me. One of the youth asked me, what happens if you don't listen to God's calling or you don't do what he's telling you to do? Out of nowhere, this illustration popped in my head and I shared aloud. I said, if you know that God has a calling and a plan for your life and you don't follow it, God's not going to necessarily strike you with lightning or take away a loved one, but if you choose not to listen to your calling, then you will miss out on a lifetime of blessings that God has in store for you. It's like if you come to a fork in a road, to the right is a beautiful ro road full of trees and flowers, and to the left is a dirty, desolate road. Which will you choose to take? The road that is beautiful represents the path of God's calling in your life, and if you choose to accept, if you choose to accept it, then you will gain a lifetime of blessing and riches, maybe not on this earth, but definitely in God's kingdom. At JAMA, all the speakers, especially Dr. Kim, really stress the importance of prayer. That is the area of my life that I struggle with. At JAMA, I really tried to, hard to pray for God's will in my life. As many of you know, I'm planning to leave next month to teach English in Korea. I've been applying to many different recruiting companies all summer long, but every email that I get back says, Dear Kaylee, I'm sorry to inform you that we no longer have any positions available for the fall. However, we read your application and resume and believe that you will be eligible to go in February. I keep thinking to myself, no, I don't want to go in February because I can't just waste a semester doing nothing. While at JAMA, I began praying to God and really asking him to lead me in the right direction. Jeremiah 29, 11 came to my head. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in future and a future. While I began to speak this verse over my life, God gave me an instant peace of mind. I began to pray, God, if your will for me is not to go in August, I'm willing to go in February, but show me what you want me to do in the meantime. I began to accept the fact that maybe God had other plans for me. I vowed to continue applying for jobs when I got home, but to accept the fact that maybe that wasn't where God wanted me to be. I got back home on Monday morning, and all evening I spent my time applying for jobs. Before I submitted my first application, I prayed a short prayer. God, please bless me. I'm, active, I'm actively seeking a job, however, if I only want to go to Korea out of the selfish desire of my heart, then I don't want to go. I don't want to be where you have called me, or I want to be where you have called me. If it is your will then that, 
then may I find a job. But if it's not your will, please show me what you want from me. After this prayer, I applied to four recruiting companies and for a total of seven jobs. Within an hour, I had already received emails from three of those companies expressing their interest in me. God showed me that if I'm willing to surrender the selfish desires of my heart, that he would bless me. I've made an effort to continue praying each day. I realize the importance of prayer, not only for God's will in my life, but for the lives of others, for those who are broken and lost, for those who are suffering from social injustice, for our church, and for our country. God, I'm willing to surrender my all to you. Use me to expand your kingdom. Thank you. Thanks, Kaylee, for sharing with us and inviting us into the blessings that you receive from the Lord. We're, uh, this is kind of uh, bittersweet. This is the last uh, two weeks, this week and next week of our uh, of our series on uh, empty on the life of Jacob and his family, um, we have taken a, a couple weeks uh, or a week away from it to uh, send off our DR team last week, but we're going to pick up again today. Um, but I was thinking a little bit about what we're uh, talking about here, and it led me to think back to my middle school days. I know uh, middle. Can, how many middle schoolers in here? Can you raise your hand? Okay, it's that corner right there. Okay, <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> we got a big middle schooler back there. Uh, middle school was a was a is a very difficult time. It was a very difficult time for me, uh, especially because my my middle school was really kind of like gangster, like hood. Uh, it's called Langston Hughes Middle School, and a lot of a lot of thug life people. Most of them came from my elementary school, but a lot of a lot of thug life people there. And there would always be a, like a fight each week. And it would always be scary. I don't know if you guys, when you, when you see fights at school, if you get excited. Maybe some of y'all get excited. Uh, remember in elementary school, we were at like a suburban elementary school. And I used to, uh, there used to be fights and we used to sell tickets to them because it was all kind of like fun and cute. But uh, when we got to middle school, it became the real deal. And people were like really, really fighting. And so it'd be scary. But it always happened the same way. There'd be like this mob of people. Uh, sometimes there'd be this rumor, oh my gosh, in the locker commons, such and such and such and such are going to get into a fight. Um, but usually, whether there was a rumor like that or not, or some gossip like that, uh, it would always be this, this big mass of people after a certain class or during lunch or right after school, and they would just like run towards a certain area. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's happening again. And so people would get there and they would start fighting and everyone would yell and they would scream. And I was always afraid that I was going to get caught in the fray and I'd get like knocked out or something like that. And so it was always a really scary thing for me. People would fight and then it would only last for maybe like a couple of seconds because someone would inevitably yell, teacher, and then everyone would just like take off running their own ways. And then there'd be like two people uh, jacked up. Like sometimes they'd be bloody. Sometimes their nose would be crooked. And they'd be all angry being escorted out into the office by uh, a security guard or an officer or, or, or a principal or assistant principal or guidance counselor or something like that. And I always remember that in, in these fights, man, maybe like one every week at a certain point. And I was like, I just got to make sure I don't say anything stupid so that someone tries to fight me because I don't want my life to get jacked up like this. So there will always be things like this going on in, in, in middle school. And after every single one of these fights, the only thing I knew was that this person who got into a fight, whatever the situation was, uh, his life will never be the same again. Either his face will be messed up, his reputation will be messed up, his future will be messed up. Something is going to be messed up about his life, and his life will never be the same after this fight. His life will forever be transformed. As we look into Jacob's life, we're going to look into the night, the day, that his life was forever changed. It involves a big, big, big fight. Exit, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to look at Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. And I'm going to kind of rehash and set the stage for us. I, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Daniel shared with us on the passages before and after this. And he really did a good job of setting the table for us to kind of feast on this text here. But I want to reiterate what's been going on. Jacob has been living in Syria with his uncle Laban for 20 years. Remember, he took off to, uh, to Syria to live with his uncle because he had done a whole bunch of shady stuff with his brother. All of his life, he wanted to be loved by his dad. He was empty, void of love, had this vacuum in, in love in his heart. And so he wanted so much to be his older brother, his older brother who received all the love from his dad. And so he uh, stole the birthright, the blessing of the firstborn birthright by uh, selling it for stew to his older brother. And then later in life, when his father was old and decrepit and his eyes were gone and his hearing was going away, 
Uh, he tricked his dad into giving him the blessing of the firstborn rather than waiting for the secondborn blessing. He, he stole it from his brother, stole it from his dad. And when his brother found out, he was livid. And he's like, I, I'm going I'm to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill Jacob when I find him. Uh, I'm going to kill him when I ever find him. And so Jacob takes off. His mom says, you're going to die. You need to go live with my brother Laban out in Syria. And so Jacob takes off. And for the last 20 years, he's lived there. And along the way, for these past 20 years, a lot has happened these 20 years. He's gotten married to two women and had two other maidservants. And through with these four women, he had 12 children. Okay, 20 years, he had 12 children. All this stuff is going on. He's gotten very wealthy. He's got a lot of cattle. And now it's time, God says, it's time for you to go back to your family in the promised land. It's time for you to go back to Canaan. And so here's Jacob. He's getting ready to go. But he knows that his brother Esau is extremely angry and plotting bloody murder against him. And so he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do? And so he sends these messengers ahead of him uh, to his brother and say, hey, let him know that I'm coming. And when his messenger sees him, he sees that Esau has 400 people with him. And he's got this crew of people. And Jacob's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get killed. Why else would he have 400 people except to kill me? And so the messenger comes back and Jacob's like, okay, let me do what I always do. I'm going to make a plan. And so he divides his group into two groups. He's got one group in the front, one group on the other side. And he says, if they attack this front group, then the other group, at least half of us will survive. And he's thinking, and this is awesome, in, in, in chapter 32, we're not going to read it here, but in chapter 32, it tells us exactly how he creates this human shield around himself. He thinks, who are the people that I don't mind getting killed? He thinks, well, my maidservants, they're not that great. Let's put them in the front. And then he thinks about his wives. Which wife don't I like? Uh, Rachel, uh, Leah, Leah. Let's put Leah out in front. And then if they get killed, then Rachel, run for your life. We'll, we'll, we'll be spared. Right? So he puts Rachel in the back with uh, his favorite sons. And that's how he does it. That's how he's uh, preparing to go. And then we come to uh, chapter 32, verse 22. It says, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. And he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is God's word. Crazy, crazy. Let me uh, pray for us real quick as we look into this. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would take these words and you would give life to your people, that you would allow your word to go forth in power, that indeed what is dry would be made whole again, would be brought to a newfound softness, that what's dead would indeed be brought to life, that you would challenge and you would give us hope, you would comfort, you would encourage, and, and may the result be a longing for and a move towards transformation. We thank you so much. We love you. Be with me, my gracious master and my God. Assist me to proclaim and to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Uh, we see here, if you uh, look at the, the heading of your Bible in this passage, it says Jacob wrestles with God. We're seeing Jacob and the fight that he has for transformation. In Genesis chapter 28, I think it was, uh, in chap chapter 28, Jacob has a dream at Bethel. It says the sun set, Jacob meets with God at Bethel, and his life will forever be marked by that incident. In chapter 32 here at Peniel, Jacob wrestles with God. The sun doesn't set, the sun rises, and his life will never be the same. This is the defining moment in Jacob's life here. 
for, from this point forward, his life would forever be transformed. And the question is, what happened in this moment? What happened in this fight? What happened in Jacob's life in his wrestling with God that brought about transformation? And the question for you and me is, how does lasting change happen? Because I know in all of our lives, we've experienced times where we think we've been changed. But after a week, after two weeks, after a month, after a year, we go back to our old ways. How does lasting transformation happen? Jacob fights for transformation. And what we see here is this is a fight that you and I need to engage in if ever we're going to be forever changed. And so uh, we look at this passage. The first thing that we see here is that transformation begins when we get personal with God. Verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, two maidservants, 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. The first thing that we have to see here is that if we want to be transformed for good, for life, then we have to get personal with God. Here's Jacob. He spent all of his life hearing about the God of his father, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And appropriating this faith, mediating this faith to him was the stories that were told by his parents, the stories that were told of generations gone before him. But he never got personal with God, you see, outside of Bethel. But that wasn't a transformative moment until we get to this place here. See, if we really want to experience genuine transformation, we have to get personal with God. Okay, this is not to say that what we always talk about, life together, we have to be the church, we have to be in house church, you have to be in community, you have to be in friendship. You want to go fast, you go uh, alone, you want to go far, you go together. I'm not discounting any of that stuff. All of these things are important, but the first thing that needs to happen, if you genuinely want to be transformed by God, is that you need to get personal with him. And I think the great majority of people who profess Christianity in their lives Live a faith that is impersonal because it is simply uh, lived out in the corporate realm. Don't you hear me say this all the time? Our generation is one that is known for public passion, but is devoid of private devotion. One that is known for our public faith, but is lacking in our personal faith. And because of that, you see people who graduate high school and they go off to college and they go astray and, and, and you wonder what happened to them. They were so active in church. They were so faithful in our youth ministry days. And they've gone off to college and all of a sudden they're doing all of these things and never coming back to church. I have a couple things, a couple reasons why. One is that they're just uh, going through a time of transition and backsliding and they will in time come back to the Lord. And I pray that for a great majority of people, that's what it is. But for a lot of people, the reality is that they've never had a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith and their relationship with God was always mediated by the church. And they would come and they would come to retreats. They would come to Sunday worship. They would feel blessed. They would feel emotional. And then they'd go forth and thinking they've got a relationship with God, but they never get personal with him. And if we want lasting transformation to happen, we need to get alone and we need to get personal with God. Apart from that, we're never going to have lasting change in our lives. There will be pseudo change. There will be outer change. We go to church, we do the right things, but there's no inner change of life and love and joy and peace and, and change within our hearts. You understand what I'm saying? A lot of times people go off and I, uh, earlier this, this, actually last month, I was at a retreat. And uh, there was this, this gal named Molly. She came up to me and she's like, you know what, Pastor Deal, I, 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 I'm having all of these doubts in my heart because I've grown up in church. My parents are, are leaders in the church. And, and yet I get to this place. I'm a junior in high school and I'm having all of these questions about whether all of these things that I've been told is really true and is really real. And she's not the only one, even within our church, couple conversations in the past month with people. As they've grown up in the faith, they've grown up in church, parents telling them all of these things and saying, is this really real? And I think the struggle for faith is genuine and it's real. And we have to go through this in order for our faith to be real, in order for our faith to be solid, in order for our faith to be transformative. We've got to get personal with him and to know this in our hearts. Last week, we had a, a celebration and very um, just a, a beautiful time of um, for me, at least it was a beautiful time for me to just uh, soak in the faithfulness of God in the past uh, years that, that I've been here. And, and afterwards, one of the people who was, who was here, um, we were talking, and he, he said, you know what? Uh, I've been coming here for 
X many years or, or months, and he basically went on to say, I wish that, I wish that the things that people said about your life in them, about your relationship with them, about your friendship with them, I wish the things that they said are things that I could say about my relationship with you as well. In other words, I'm not saying that to talk about myself, but I'm, by analogy for us to see that a lot, of, a lot of us live life this way. That we hear stories of other people, how they've been transformed by God, how they've been touched by God, how God has done a work in their hearts. And we wish that it was our story, but because we've not gotten personal with God, that's not our story. And yet God is someone that we can look at from afar, but he never really affects our lives. Because we don't have the time to get personal with him or because we are too busy to get personal with him or because we don't think it's necessary for that to happen. You see, we're really good at being good publicly in our relationship with God. But when it comes down to getting personal with him. You see, there were 12 people who followed Jesus for three and a half years, spent every day of their lives with him. And yet there was this one fellow named Judas who never experienced transformation. Because he never got personal with him. Because Jesus was, was, yeah, he was there for the masses. He was there for the groups. And I was there in that group of 12. I was there in that group of, of 5,000 when Jesus fed us all. But I wasn't ever there personally with Jesus. And I, I wonder how many of us are, are, are like that. doesn't matter how long we've been going to church or whether we're involved in the student leadership team or we're involved in a Bible study or we've been going to house church for, for five years or, or none of that stuff really matters. At the end of the day, the question is, are you personal? Do you have a personal living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ? Not mediated by the lives of other people, not dictated by other people's stories. And you say, yeah, because of their stories, I know that God is real. But you know in your heart of hearts that he has transformed your life because you have gotten personal with him. It begins by saying, I need Jesus in my life life in a personal way. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at your door and I knock. And if you open the door, then I'll come in and I'll have fellowship with you and you with me. But unless you get personal, you're not going to experience true transformation on this life and in the life to come. We need to get personal with God. Here, Jacob, he was stripped of all of these other people around him, all of his possessions, all of his protection was gone. He was there just all by himself. And it was there that God began to meet him personally alone so that transformation could happen. We will never experience lasting change that will go throughout your life if you don't get personal with God. And it begins by saying, I need you, Jesus, to be the forgiver of my sins and to be the Lord of my life. Simply going to church isn't what makes you personal with God. And it has to be personal. It's got to be personal. It's got to be in our own ways, in our, uh, in our own time with God. Not just here, not just in big group, but it's got to be a personal thing. That's the first thing to transformation that Jacob understood. The second thing that he understood, and the second thing that we have to see for true transformation to come, is that we have to take an honest look at ourselves. What does that mean? I'm going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew today. Um, and it's going to be simple. It's not, it's not difficult. Jacob, okay, um, when you say Jacob's name in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yaakov. Okay, can you all say that? One, two, three. Yaakov. Okay, one more time. Jacob's name in Hebrew is one, two, three, Yaakov. Very good. Okay, so you've got your first lesson. First lesson in Hebrew, Yaakov. Okay. Where is Jacob when all of this takes place? It's very interesting. It's at a place called, well, in verse 22, cross the ford of the Jabbok. Okay, that's how we say it, Jabbok. But in Hebrew, here's how they say it. They say, Yabok. Okay, let's say that. One, two, three. Yabok. So here's what we have. Immediately, in the English, we see this, just very simply, that Jacob is wrestling at Yabok. Very interesting, right? Now, what do we see here? Jacob is wrestling with God at Yabok. Now, here's what, it gets even better. In Hebrew, the word for wrestle, for grasp, you know what that word is? Pastor Dan, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to test you. The Hebrew word for wrestle is Yaakov. Ah, okay, it's huge. So here's what... If, if you were mixing, you know, we, we mix Korean and English, we call it Konglish. If we're mixing Hebrew and English, we call it Hebrish. I don't know what it's called. Honglish. Um, that's how Hong speaks English. I don't know. 
If you mix Hebrew and English, this is what we have. This is what we have. Okay, Hebrew lesson. Yaakov, Yaakov's at Yabok. So any Hebrew, if you're ever reading this in Hebrew, which you never will, because no one reads in Hebrew. But if you were to read this, if you're a Jewish person, you're a Hebrew scholar, then you would read this and immediately you would hear the wordplay. Yaakov, Yaakov at Yabok. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's something so interesting here. We, he's tipping us off to this one reality that at Yabok, the name Yaakov is highly important and it plays a huge role in his transformation. Now, what's happening here? He's wrestling. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? This is huge. We ask, what is your name? In, in, in Spanish, when you ask, what's your name? What is, how do you say it in Spanish, Hermanal? Como te llamas? That means, uh, what does that mean literally? What are you called? Okay, so we can ask that question. Even in English, you could ask that a lot of different ways. Hey, what's your name? Who are you? What are you called? Same thing in Hebrew. You can ask what's your name in a lot of different ways. What's your label? What's your handle? What are you called? This, this question is asking, what is the nature of your name? And this is a question that Jacob needed. He desperately needed to answer. Why? Whenever God asks a question, he doesn't ask because he doesn't know. Like, uh, Adam, where are you? Like, I'm talking to you, but I don't see you as if. Right? He's asking so that Adam could understand. Cain, where did your brother go? Like, I can't see your brother is dead because you killed him. Cain, where's your brother? He's not asking so that God can know. He's asking so that someone could confess something. So when he says, what is your name? It's not because he doesn't know that his name is Jacob. It's because Jacob needs to own up to that. Because the last time we see him being asked, what is your name? What does he say? He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. For the past 20 years, Jacob has been running from his past as a deceiver, as a grabber, as a deceitful person. He's been running for that for all of his life. And finally, at this point in time, God says, what is your name? And if you get this question right, then your life is going to be changed. And as he's wrestling, he says, I, my, the only thing that I can say is my name is Jacob. Okay, I confess. I come out, I surrender, God. My name is Jacob. I'm a loser. I'm a cheat. I screwed up my life. I screwed up other people's life. That's who I am. I'm Jacob. And from this point, his life would never be the same again. See, transformation begins when we take an honest look at ourselves and we begin to realize who we are when we look in the mirror and say, this is who I am. Because a lot of times we play games and we think we're better than we are. A lot of times we play games and think I'm okay. A lot of times we think, you know what, I'm a pretty good Christian compared to this person, compared to Hitler, I'm all right. When we take an honest look at our lives, we begin to realize that, you know what, I'm pretty messed up myself. Uh, Brennan Manning, a great book, Rag- Ragamuffin Gospel. He was a, an alcoholic, uh, still is. An al- any alcoholic knows that they never get over their alcoholism. No matter how long you've been sober, you always say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. He is. 1975, he was in this Alcoholics Anonymous group. Um, I forget where it was. But the group leader was a guy named Sam, just tough as nails kind of guy. 24 people in this group. And this day in 1975, for the first time, this guy named Max came to their Alcoholics Anonymous group. Okay? A guy named Max sat in the group, and he was on the hot chair. Max was a father of five, CEO of his small business. He was a baller. Right? He had this air of, of arrogance and confidence about him, like nothing could break him, nothing could destroy him. And so the first question that this group leader asked, Sam asked is, how long have you been drinking like a pig? And the guy said, whoa, that's a little bit pushy, don't you think? And he said, we'll see about that. He said, how long have you been drinking like a pig? And he said, well, um, it's, you know, it's been a few years. I, I drink casually, but it's, it's, it's not a problem for me. Like, how many drinks do you have a day? He said, I have eight cocktails, right? Two in the morning, two at night, four during the day, because I have to entertain people all the time. That's what I do. I'm a CEO. Eight cocktails, no more, no less. He's like, that's it? You sure? He's like, that's it. He began, and one, one of these guys, one of these alcoholics said, you're a liar. And this guy, you know, he's dressed nicely. He's CEO, big time. He's like uh, starting to get a little bit agitated by these people. And he's like, no, eight drinks, that's it. And they started asking him all these questions, started peppering him with questions. 20 minutes, his questioning went on. 
And finally, he admitted, okay, I keep one in my briefcase. I keep one in my cabinet at, at home. I keep a few in my desk, in my office, where headquarters is, because people are always coming, and I've got to give them a drink or two. They're like, you're such a liar. You're such a liar. He's like, what are you talking about? I've told you everything. I'm an open book. And, and so they, they're, they're asking these questions, and, and these people are starting to, because these people are completely broke. The first rule of Alcoholics Anonymous is you admit, my name is and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, you realize that you are powerless to do anything about this problem in your life. And so this guy wouldn't say that. And so they would continue asking questions. And then he said, well, we'll see about that. And so he picked up the phone and he called the bartender from his home in Minnesota. And he called him up and he's like, hey, do you know a guy named Max? Max used to go into your bar. He's like, oh, yeah. Like, how many drinks did he do a day? He's like, uh, are you sure you're allowed to ask me? Are you sure I'm allowed to say this? He said, yeah, he signed an affidavit when he came into this group. And he just began to tell him about how he would get plastered all the time, all the time, just getting hammered with alcohol. And this guy, Max, he's sitting in a chair, and he's hearing all this stuff. He's getting really antsy. He's getting really fidgety. He's sitting in his seat. Guy hangs up the phone, and these guys are looking at him like, you need to, you need to fess up. He's like, no, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So he said, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, ever been mean to your children? Like, ah, uh, well, I've got a great relationship with my kids. I've got five of them. Two of them graduated from Harvard. They're out in the world making. And the guy stopped. And he's like, no, that's not what I asked you. I asked you, ever been mean to your kids? Like, ah, uh, yeah, probably. And, and Sam said, look, every father has been mean to his child at least one time. Tell me of your story. They're like, well, I know that something happened last year, Christmas Eve, but I don't really know all the details. I just, I just know it's got a bad taste in my mouth. He's like, spill the, spill the beans. Tell us. Like, I, don't, I, I really don't remember. I just can't recall it. And so the guy picked up the phone. He calls his wife back home. Like, hey, I wanted to ask you. Um, I wanted to ask you about what happened last year, Christmas Eve. He's like, I remember it like, like yesterday. They're living in Minnesota. Minnesota and Christmas Eve is nasty. It is brutal. 12 degrees that day. Christmas Eve, he goes to his, his, his little daughter, nine years old, and he gives her $60, drives her to the store, and says, you buy the prettiest shoes that you want. And she was so excited. And she went into the store. She bought her $60 shoes. She came out, and she gave him a hug and said, you're the best daddy ever. You're the best dad in the world. And he was so filled with excitement and so filled with gladness that he wanted to celebrate. So about a few miles away from home, there's this tavern. They sell beer. They sell alcohol. He stopped in there, 12 degrees outside, so he left the engine on, said, just wait here. I'll be right back. Turned on the heater, locked the door, said nobody could get in, and he went into the tavern. Wife is telling the story. And it was about a 15-second pause. And Sam says, then what happened? So he went in, in at 3 in the afternoon. He didn't come out till midnight. The car stopped running. Engine had stopped. The doors were locked shut. She had frostbite on her hands, on her ears. Immediately went to the hospital. She had to amputate two of her fingers. She'll be deaf the rest of her life. She's telling this story, and this guy is on the floor, and he's sobbing. He's just like on his, on his hands and knees, and Sam hangs up the phone, and he kicks him over. And he says, you are unspeakable slime. Get the hell out of here. And he pushed him down. The guy didn't move. He was crying. He said to the other 23 guys, let's, let's leave. They left him. He, before he left, he said, I'm not running a rehab clinic for liars. Because the first rule of getting help is you look yourself in the mirror and you admit that you've got problems. He said later that day, this guy, Max, begged and pleaded. He said, can I please get back in this group? Can I please get back in? I admit, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a whole lot worse than I led you to believe. I'm going to get honest because he knew that three things, three options, either he's going to continue living in this lie and go insane, he's going to be prematurely dead, or he's going to get well. That's the only three options he's got. And so finally, he said, okay, I've got problems. I'm going to come clean. I'll be honest with myself and be honest with you and be honest with God. And for the first time, he admitted his problem. He said, from that day, Brennan Manning said, from that day, this guy began to be changed. He started praying. He started reading the word. He's complete transformation. He became the most humble person. He became the most compassionate person. He became the most just selfless giving person to other people. 
He said transformation began when he began to realize that I need to face myself honestly and be honest with myself and be honest with God about the pain and the jacked up life that I live. And for Jacob to transform, to be transformed, he had to come clean in that place and say, you know what? This is who I am. I'm not Esau. I'm not this great person. I'm Jacob. I've messed up my life. And for you guys to be changed, for me to be changed, we need to come clean and be honest with ourselves and be honest with God. I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to the approval of boys. I'm addicted to sex. I'm addicted to whatever it is that you're, some of y'all need to say, I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to whatever it is that you're addicted to. And you need to be honest with yourself because you will never change for good unless you get honest with yourself. I'm addicted to this relationship. I'm addicted to this person. I'm addicted to this drug and I need to get help because unless you do, you will never experience transformation. You will never do it. You'll never experience lasting change in your life. And we've got to come clean. And for Jacob, this was his confession that God, I agree with you. I agree with your assessment of who I am. I don't have it all together. And as soon as he confessed, it says, verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Here's what he's saying. It it says here, your name will no longer be Jacob. But he says, it shall no longer be said of you that you are Jacob. He said, no longer will your life be known. No longer will you be marked as a deceiver. No longer will you be marked as a grasper, as a heel grabber. You will forever be different. Now you'll be called the prince of God. Because change is beginning to happen when you get personal with God and when you get honest with yourself and you take an honest look at your life and say, I need help and I cannot do it on my own. Some of us need to face the idolatry and the reality of our hearts and to say, I'm not going to change unless I come clean with myself and with somebody else and with God. Because that's the only way transformation is going to come, the last thing. The last thing that we see is transformation comes when we get desperately dependent upon God. The first thing that Jacob does when he realizes that, oh my gosh, tomorrow is D-Day. I'm facing Esau and my life could end here. The first thing that he does is he begins to pray as a show of his, his dependence. But you and I know that if you were to pray and this Esau incident is done, then he'll go right back to his own selfish, conniving, deceiving ways. Because we do this all the time, don't we? We realize, oh my gosh, I'm desperate for God in this one moment, and we pray and we pray and we pray, and then God gets us through that, and then we stop praying. We begin to depend on ourselves again. Isn't that how it is? That's how it is for me, at least. That's how it is for me. Again, this moment where I need God so badly and I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray and then God gets me through this time. I give thanks to God and then I go back to living my own, my dependent ways, self-dependent ways, selfish ways, leaning on my own self. And God knew that Jacob was going to do that. And so he says, what can I do? What can I do so that Jacob will forever be desperately dependent upon me and no longer go back to his old ways? What can I do? And it says that he touches in verse 25 he touched the socket of jacob's hip and he was permanently damaged so that from that day forward jacob walked with a desperate limp that every step he took he knew that this was the mark of his dependence upon God, of his wrestling with God, where no longer will I wrestle with man, but I will wrestle with God and overcome. Now I live in constant dependence upon him. You see, when we, we're, we're either going to depend on ourselves or we're going to depend on God. We depend on ourselves and we're going to be working in our power. We begin to depend on God. We work in, in his, his almighty power. And that's what God wants. If you're going to go back to Canaan, Jacob, then you've got to leave all this baggage behind. You've got to learn to depend on me. You've got to be transformed so that you can lead your people so that this generation, your patriarchal generation, will lead a people into the promised land or your ancestors will enter into the promised land. But you need to let go of this baggage. You know, for a lot of us, God wants to use our lives, but in order for us to get there, he, we have to understand what it means to walk with a limp in constant dependence upon God. Because some of us, and God is calling us to do things that we feel like I can do. I can do this is second nature for me. 
And there comes a point in our lives where God causes us to limp so that we would always remember that I cannot do this apart from God. You remember the first time you were involved in some kind of a ministry? Maybe the first time you ever had to teach a Bible study class. And you were so frightened that you threw yourself in dependence upon God in prayer. The first time you ever led worship. First time you went on a mission trip and you had to teach VBS. First time you ever had to go and share the gospel with somebody. You were so filled with fear that, God, I can't do this, that you threw yourself on the mat and you said, God, I need you. I need you so much. I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to you. I need you, God. Help me. And God sustained you and he empowered you and you got through that time and you got through that place. And and then all of a sudden, you begin to realize that, man, I, I can do this and people like it. And, and, and slowly we begin to realize that I can do this without depending on God. And I can still get some kind of results from it. I don't ever want to get to that place because I know how easily I can be in that place. I remember the first time I ever went to preach at a retreat, just being so completely in awe of the greatness of God. I was walking around. This is my, actually my second retreat. And I was walking around in, in this forest in New Jersey. It was snowing. And, and, and just the greatness of God that he would call me to preach the word of God to people who were so broken, struggling with addictions and drugs and all kinds of things. And I was like a 22-year-old. Like, God, how in the world are you going to use me? How in the world am I going to do anything? And I completely in dependence upon God. God, help me. I need you to do this. And then, and then along the way, I know my tendency to think that, God, I can do this. I can do this. And, and my prayer life gets shortened and my other things get longer and I get busier and all these things. And, 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 and lately, the past few months, God has really been challenging me about this stuff. He's really been convicting my heart. And for the past about six months, every Saturday night when I go to sleep, after I've looked at my sermon, I've been, I've been just, the, the song that has just been just, Grabbing my heart and convicting my heart. It's this old song by, uh, by a man named Keith Green. And it's called Until That Final Day. And it, it says things like, my flesh is tired of seeking God, but on my knees I'll stay. I want to be a pleasing child until that final day. My mind is filled with many thoughts that clutter and confuse, but standing firm I will remain in faith that I'll be used. I one sleepless night in anguish prayer. I triumph over sin. One battle in the holy war. He's promised me to win. And I fight and I fight and I fight. And I say, God, I want just a little bit more because I know I could preach this sermon tomorrow. But God, I need you to show up in this place. I need you to show up. I don't want to do a, a, a David sized work in my congregation. That doesn't do anyone any good. But God, I need you to show up. And so as I lay next to my wife, Olivia, she sleeps. I, I'm sitting there. And I'm wrestling and I'm fighting because I know that I can't do it apart from him. I know that I can't do it apart from him. I, God, I don't, want, I don't want my words to fall in front of my feet, but I need your word to go forth in power. You've got to do this, God. You've got to do this. I don't want to be dependent on myself anymore. And it's like God is haunting me so that I cannot sleep without fighting and falling to my knees in prayer and say, God, I need you to show up. I need you to show up in this place because I am absolutely convinced that the only way That anything good is going to happen in our church and in our world is if we lead with a limp in dependence upon God and say, God, I need you to do this. I need you to show up. And every step that he took, right? We used to sing this song. Every step that I take says I need you. Every step that he took literally and I think about people like Pastor Albert. I think about people like James J., people who've hurt their ankles. And, and it, like literally every step they take as they walk on crutches, they can't do it on their own. See, this limp is a gift of God to teach us to say, I cannot do it apart from you. I can't. And so every step that Jacob took for the rest of his life, say, God, I need you. I need you. I'm sick and tired of doing it on my own. 97 years of my life, I did it on my own. And this one, you tap my my hip and I'm forever changed. And now I know that I need you. As you lead your house church, as you lead your Sunday school class, as you minister in your small group at SNF, as you do whatever it is that you do, we need 
to be desperately dependent upon God for any lasting change to happen in our lives and in the lives of people that we're praying for, that we're serving, that we're giving ourselves to. It's got to be this way. We live in desperate, and that's the only way that transformation is going to come. It's the only way. And it's the same reason why God left a thorn in the flesh of the great apostle to keep him from becoming conceited because of all the things that he saw. God put a thorn in his flesh and three times he pleaded with the Lord, God, take this away. And God said, no, I'm going to leave that so that you know that my grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, my power is made perfect. See, when we're strong, we're really weak. But when we're weak, that's when God becomes strong in us. How is it that when Jacob is wrestling with God, literally the word here, it says it's a tap, like a tap of Jacob's hip completely wrenched it. How is it that he just does that thing and he's completely broken, his hip is broken, and yet God's still wrestling with him says, okay, you win. Jacob knows who he's dealing with. And he says, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me because I know that I'm wrestling with God here. And there's just this love tap and his hip is completely wrenched. How could God wrestle with man and say, okay, you win? I I think we understand this in some way. Anyone who has little children ever played this game. Uh, We play this little game at home. It's not really a game. It's just kind of like, we tell Manny, Olive and I say, Manny, uh, in Korean, it means, we say chaba, which means catch us, and we start running away from her. And she gets really excited because she's running after us trying to catch us. If we were to run full speed, she would never catch us. Right? Run out the door, and she'd start crying. But we run. We run in place for a little bit. We take a couple steps, and then she grabs us, and we say, you got us. You won, Manny. Because we're withholding our strength from her so that she could become victorious. See, God is withholding himself. God is becoming weak so that Jacob could become strong. God is becoming weak so that Jacob could be the victor. And he's pointing us forward to another time when God would come as a man And he would become weak. And this man on Calvary would be left all alone and he would wrestle. And he would wrestle with the greatest things, the greatest enemies that we would ever wrestle with. And yet in that moment, rather than God saying, I'm going to grant you victory, he left this man all alone. And on the cross, Jesus became weak, weaker than any human being because he took upon himself all of our weight and all of our sin. Jacob could be blessed after 97 years of deserving curses because in that moment, Jesus became weak by taking upon himself 33 years plus all of the years from past and, and, and future of the cursing that we deserved so that we could have the victory that only Christ deserved. Jesus fought this fight of transformation for you and me. And he says, look now, the fight is yours. This is the fight for transformation, and it's one that all of us need to engage in. But he says change is here. There's no reason, people of God, why we shouldn't experience the transformation of God if we come to believe in the hope of the gospel. For just a minute, let's pray right now. Let's ask the Lord God. Maybe some of you in here have not yet gotten into, entered into a personal relationship with God. You've been watching from the side. You've been watching it through church. You've been watching it through other people. He's saying, hey, you need me. He's knocking at the door of your heart right now. And he says, you need me. If you just say, come in, Jesus, I'll come in. And I'll start the process of transformation because you and I know that we need to be changed. And maybe others of us in here just need to get honest with God about the sins, the temptations, the dysfunctions, the addictions in your life. And you've been glossing it over and you've been calling it something else. You've been getting drunk all the time and saying, this is my religious liberty. 
you've been crossing the line with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you've said this is, we're not going all the way, whatever it might be. You've sought after the affections of people of the opposite gender. And you said, I'm just doing my, I'm just doing my role to love people in the church. As we come honest before the Lord God, what is he saying to you and what is he saying to me? And maybe others of us, he's just saying, you need to get desperate and you need to be dependent. To learn that you walk with a limp every day of your life, whether you realize it or not. And maybe some of y'all, God has put a limp in your life and you've been upset about it. You've been angry at God, but he's saying, this is to remind you that you need to lean wholly on me. And when you do, your destiny begins to change. Let's begin to pray to the Lord God for just a minute right now and just say, Lord God, here I am. I need you. I need your help. Come change me. Come transform me. I cling to you right now. God, I won't let go unless you bless me. I won't let go. So change me, Lord. Let's pray. Let's uh, take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, you wrestle with the sinner's heart. Help us, God, to surrender to you. Change us from the inside out. God, we can't live this life apart from you and to live in the joy that you've won for us. God, may we let go. And would you take control and make us who you want us to be? In Jesus' name.